You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme... Turkey protests after a Swedish politician burns the Koran. We'll get details from protests in Stockholm and Istanbul. Then to Lagos, where the country is preparing for polls next month. We'll ask how significant this vote is. We'll check in with our Latin America correspondent and get a wrap from the men's fashion weeks in both Milan and Paris. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Tensions flared between Turkey and Sweden over the weekend. Ankara has been blocking Stockholm's bid to join NATO unless various conditions are met. But following the burning of the Islamic holy book, the Quran, a meeting between defence ministers of the two countries due to take place later in the week has been called off. Well, joining me are Ilgin Kalidag, who is a journalist in Malmö, who spent the last six years reporting between Turkey and Sweden, and Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Uh, Welcome to the show, both of you. Um, There were two separate protests in Sweden this weekend, one carried out by a far-right political party and the other supporting Kurds against Sweden's bid to join NATO. Ilgen, let's start with the far-right protest. What went on and why? Well, what happened was that a notorious far-right extremist politician, Rasmus Paludan, he burnt... um, the Quran in front of the Turkish embassy. So it wasn't really a massive protest. It's just him standing there with permission, actually, uh, to do so. And and uh, and he burnt it while having protection in front of the embassy. And and this person, as I said, is notorious for Quran burnings. He's done it in the past, and it has led to violence in the past as well. And uh, I would say that many many people in Sweden do not agree with his views and. And he doesn't represent sort of wider public, <laughs> mm. if that makes sense. I mean, it's a really offensive thing to do, Hannah. What's the reaction in Turkey to this been? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, this is, um, I think the two things that could offend people in Turkey, most of the two things that have happened in Sweden, I mean, burning the Quran is, is you know, not something that just kind of um, insults really conservative Muslims. It, it causes really wide offence. Um, so, I mean, there was a protest outside the Swedish embassy here in Istanbul over the weekend. That's right in the heart of Istanbul. I should say, you know, protests are not usually allowed um, these days unless they are, um, you know, something in the favour of President Erdogan and the government. So clearly this protest was something that was allowed to go ahead. And then obviously, of course, there's also the political reaction, the visit from the defence minister being cancelled. What's really interesting is, you know, before this, I I met with Ibrahim Kalin, President Erdogan's spokesman, last weekend. And one of the things that he talked about was, you know, the the progress in the Sweden-Finland NATO membership bid. And he actually seemed really positive. He was saying, listen, we feel that things are progressing in the right way. Um, you know, Sweden particularly has taken the steps that we want them to take. We understand that it takes a little bit longer to put laws in place, but everything's going in the right direction. And, you know, this, uh, you know, protest is, as was said by, you know, one man 
uh, you know, marginal figure has just knocked everything off course. Mm. And of course, uh, Ilgen, there are some Swedes who are not at all keen for their country to join the military alliance, or at least not yet. Tell us about the other protest. Well, the thing is that um, a majority of Swedes, according to a recent poll, uh, feel that Sweden should defend its laws against Turkey's demands. Turkey wants stricter terror laws and, and, and Swedes, majority of Swedes want Sweden to defend itself against this, even if it means that this will delay the process. So a majority of Swedes feel that the cost of joining NATO might be too high if it means that laws have to change here in Sweden. And I, I wonder, Hannah, if you could just recap what Turkey's demands are. Yeah, so what Turkey says is that NATO is, you know, a mutual defence alliance and for that reason the, the kind of anti-terrorist laws in, in Sweden and Finland need to be changed so that uh, members of the PKK, that's a, a Kurdish militia operating in Turkey and other parts of the Middle East, um, that's considered a terrorist group, not only by Turkey but also by the EU, by the US, um, so that its members cannot organise there, can't fundraise there, uh, and, and can't have these kind of you know open demonstrations against Turkey there. It also wants the return of uh, some um, figures who are Turkish citizens who are in Turkey, want them extradited back to Turkey to face trial. So those are the two key demands. Mm. Uh, Ilgen, are there a lot of Kurds living in Sweden? There are a lot of Kurds, yes. And... and um, I mean, there are lots of Kurds and people who live here who are, you know, allegedly or accused of being members of, of the PKK, and um, but not just not just the PKK, but also people who are um, accused of being members of uh, of the Gulenist movement, who I know Hannah can talk more about. Um, so there's there's a list list of people that Turkey wants back, and and the Kurds here are many of them are are you know protesting against this. And what happened is before the Quran burning, there was a, a life-size sort of doll uh, portraying President Turkish President Erdogan. And this doll was sort of hung upside down, like a form of lynching. And that caused absolute outrage. And this was before the Quran burning. So the tensions between the countries um, have been going on for, for a few weeks. And um, and and this this doll was hung up by the, the Rojava committee and... Um, and uh, and so there's also been there's also a Kurdish uh, language uh, TV show broadcast by the the public broadcaster in Sweden, and they always mock Erdogan as well. So so there is lots of criticism among Kurds who who uh, say that they feel betrayed mm. uh, by Sweden. For mm, carry on, uh, Hannah, you you were talking about how, how there did seem to be a chink of light in this, but will this have have stopped all that? It's really difficult to tell. I mean, it, the next thing that was meant to happen was that Sweden, Finland and Turkey were all meant to meet uh, in Brussels at the NATO headquarters. Uh, you know, Jen Stoltenberg, Secretary General, has been really kind of key in trying to push this forward. Um, and I think, you know, in the long term, it is going to happen. You know, I do think there is, you know, a will in Turkey for, for this to go forward. But the problem is, we've also got a domestic element here in Turkey. President Erdogan's facing elections in a few months, likely to be in the middle of May. Um, and as we've seen in the past, you know, these kind of rows where, you know, a country in Europe 
um, you know, something happening in a country in Europe is taken as an offence by Erdogan and is kind of built up into this, you know, big offence against the Turkish nation has proved really, really useful for Erdogan. You know, he, he likes to kind of stoke these kind of rows. And I think the danger is if this kind of builds up and builds up, it might sort of spiral into something that then becomes almost, you know, a, a point of, you know, election campaigning for Erdogan. So I think, you know, probably you know, Jen Stoltenberg and NATO are going to be quite keen to try and keep that meeting next month on track. Mm. Uh, and Elkin, just back to something you said earlier, you said that the far-right politician was protesting with permission. And I wonder what's behind the thinking of allowing somebody who has a track record of really causing offence to behave in such a way and indeed sanctioning it and giving him protection. Well, the thing is that Sweden's courts are very independent and powerful. And, you know, the, the government, as the, the Swedish prime minister uh, said, you know, it's it's upsetting. We do not agree with this view, but it's legal. You know, even if inappropriate, it is legal. So the courts here, they, they, they weigh on freedom of expression versus actual threats and danger. In the past, sometimes he, ha- he has been rejected, but that's because the risk of, of danger. But this time he did get permission. So, so the courts here, they, they, they decide on what is valid as freedom of expression. And in this case, the Swedish courts decided that, that it was. Ilgen, thank you very much. Thanks also to Hannah Ilgen Karladag and Hannah Lucinda Smith. Now, here's Carlotta Rabella with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Germany's foreign minister has said her country will not stand in the way if Poland wants to send its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. The apparent shift in attitude signals a possible breakthrough for Ukraine ahead of another Russian offensive. New Zealand has a new prime minister. Chris Hipkins will replace Jacinda Ardern as head of the Labour Party. Hipkins has a tough road ahead with Labour trailing the opposition in opinion polls and the country expected to fall into recession before a general election in October. And Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has pledged to take urgent steps to tackle the country's declining birth rate. Kishida said he would submit plans to double the budget on child-related policies by June, saying it was now or never for the world's oldest society. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. And now to Nigeria, where next month citizens will vote in an election that could profoundly change the political future of the country. Well, on the line from Lagos is Anu Adewai, uh, the West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times. Uh, Welcome to the show. Anu, I wonder if you could give us a, a snapshot of the political landscape in Nigeria right now. Thank you for having me. Uh, As you rightly said in the intro, Nigerians are going to the polls next month to elect a successor for President Muhammadu Buhari. Um, The election, there's about 18 candidates running for president, but there are only three major candidates that uh, we can uh, talk about. Mm -hmm. And who are those three main candidates? Yes, uh, the first and the favourite is uh, Bola Tinubu, a former governor of Lagos State, and uh, the the candidate of the ruling All Progressive Congress, um, who is uh, 70 years old. Um, also, uh, another important candidate is Atiku Abubakar uh, of the oppo- of the main opposition People's Democratic uh, Party, who has run for office. This is his sixth attempt at running for president, and he was formerly vice president from 1999 to 2007. And and the third candidate to to know about is Peter Obi of the Small Labour Party. 
Uh, Peter Obi was governor of uh, Anambra State in Nigeria Southeast for eight years, and is compared to the two other two candidates, is a relative outsider, and he has uh, captured the attention of a lot of young voters in Nigeria. And how important is that youth vote? I mean, look, it's the median age in Nigeria is 18. It's one of the youngest countries in the world. Um, there's a lot of people who are still under 35 uh, between the voting age uh, of 18 to 35. So there's a strong um not, there's, there's strong numbers of people who could uh, potentially vote. Um, so yeah, it's it's very important to to capture the youth votes. But I think it's also important to note that um, turnout is going to be one of the major issues that determines these elections. Um, historically, Nigerians have not always turned out to to vote. The last election in 2019 only 35% of people came out to vote. So the election might also turn on who can get their voters to come out uh, on election day. And why is this election on February the 25th being regarded as very important? Uh, I mean, after the past eight years of President Muhammadu Buhari, uh, the country is not uh, perhaps uh, in good shape as his critics would say. Uh, The inflation is running at more than 20%. Um, insecurity that used to mostly be confined to the northeast of the country are spread to pretty much every part of the of the country. So you have uh, terror groups who have been uh, decimated in the south, in the northeast. Uh, there's splinter groups who are uh, taking advantage of the chaos in the northwest. There are uh, groups known as bandits who who are attacking people and kidnapping school children and. Parts of the southeast, you have uh, people uh, called uh, se- uh, separationists who who are calling for a new country. So there's there's insecurity in pretty much every part of the country that you look at. So when you think about how important security is and uh, the shape that the economy is in, it's a very important election for the 200 million Nigerians. 200 million, which is huge, and I wonder what happens. Uh, how, how what happens in Nigeria will affect the rest of the world, given that very large population? Yeah, I mean, I think just uh, on a continental level to start with, um, what happens in Nigeria could affect uh, the rest of the continent. Nigeria oftentimes is a bellwether for the health uh, of the continent. So you want a Nigeria that is doing well, that is agile. But also in terms of population, um, a lot of Nigerians, especially young, middle-aged uh, people uh, who are also educated are leaving the country in large numbers. Uh, uh, most of them, there's a lot of Nigerians now in the UK working as doctors, engineers and nurses. Um, so Nigeria has historically been a, a supplier of labor to the to the rest of the world. Uh, and, and we have immigration that is happening on a much grander scale than it used to be because of the conditions in the country. So I think Nigeria is very important because, to be frank, how many countries can deal with um, a situation where Nigeria is not uh, in its best shape? Mm. And if there's economic decline there, then of course that is going to to fuel migration to other countries. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It will also affect Nigeria's neighbours, the the, the small countries who surround Nigeria. So I think it's, it's an election that is... Uh, very important for everyone to keep an eye on, not only for uh, the state of Nigeria's democracy, which is one of the largest democracies anywhere in the world, 
but also because of these important uh, factors that we just outlined. And Anu, just before you go, what then would be the best possible outcome for Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, as a reporter, it's far for me to say the best uh, candidate to win. But I think in terms of the country itself, it will be great to have a free and fair election that is uh, devoid of violence and an election where at the end of the day, regardless of who wins, everyone can know that they emerged through the process uh, through a, a, a fair and free election. I think that would be the best possible out- outcome on February 25. Uh, Anu, thank you very much indeed. That's Anu Adewaye, and we'll be keeping a very close eye on events in Nigeria. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. back with a briefing on Monocle 24 and now we turn to Monocle's Latin Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott who has the headlines from the region. Lucinda, thanks for joining us again. We'll start with the big news today which is Lula's first international trip as Brazilian president. So he's in Buenos Aires to meet with his Argentinian counterpart. What are they expected to discuss? Well, Georgina, there are two main points of discussion. The first is actually the idea of creating a common currency between the two nations to bolster trade, which is which is actually improving. I mean, Brazil is Argentina's biggest buyer and Argentina is number three after China and the US for Brazil. Um, but the finance minister actually spoke to me that, and said that there's you know a very long way to go with this currency project. But the idea is eventually to ask other Latin American nations to join. And the other big talk point is gas um, and a pipeline to transport gas from Argentina. Brazil at the moment primarily gets its natural gas from Bolivia, but reserves there are in decline and Argentina has a fairly underdeveloped sector and really needs capital to help transport it and extract it. So, so those are the talking points among no doubt a few brotherly hugs between the two leftist leaders. I mean, Alberto Fernandez famously visited Lula actually in prison um, and they and they go back some time. Mm. And of course, they'll be joined by a whole host of other Latin American leaders on Tuesday. They're in Argentina for a regional summit, a, a summit I believe that was first established by Hugo Chavez, the late Venezuelan president. Yeah, so this CELAC community of Latin American and Caribbean nations meets on Tuesday. Um, Those expected to attend include Boric of Chile, uh, Petro of Colombia, but also the more controversial leaders from the region like Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela and Diaz Canal of Cuba, who actually arrived in Buenos Aires last night. And um, I mean, this is a time when many of these countries are more aligned politically, going back to the early 2000s, really, when again, there was this wave of of leftist leaders and, and Chavez set up this group. Uh, some of the old guard, like Eva Morales of Bolivia, are expected to also join. And there are sort of concerns about what this means, what the intentions will be, aside from, you know, simply commercial ones. But I think broadly, they're all going to select for their own 
nationalistic reasons, right, to boost their own image at home. Uh, Lula is keen very much to draw a line under the previous administration, um, both abroad and at home, possibly more so than rather trying to really integrate the region commercially. Mm. Now, there were protests over the weekend in Buenos Aires on news that Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela was attending the meeting. Is that right? Yeah, so I actually went down. It was near the central square in, in Buenos Aires, right outside the Sheraton Hotel, where reportedly all these leaders will be staying. Um, and I went down yesterday. And yes, there were small groups of, of Venezuelan residents who'd gathered and some members of the opposition uh, in, in Argentina in protest against the attendance of Maduro at the summit. Um, there are a number of international court orders calling for his arrest. Uh, the US actually has offered a reward of $15 million if he's captured. And Argentina does have a strong relationship with the US, as well as, of course, for human rights violations with Bachelet, the former Chilean president, presenting her findings at the UN. Um, And I mean, one of the reasons, for example, Maduro reportedly didn't even attend Lula's inauguration was that no company would refuel his state-owned plane because of it would go against international oil sanctions that are imposed against Venezuela. So so, so really, I mean, given there has been opposition and, and obviously calls for a judge to make a request for his arrest, there is a chance that actually he decides not to travel. And yes, there's a there's sort of broad opposition here in Buenos Aires today. Mm. Uh, finally, I'd like to talk about farmers growing crops in the shape of a footballer. Now, this is a fun story. So um, I think it's up to sort of 23 different farms in the the sort of the central fertile pampas region where primarily corn and soybeans are grown. And we're now in in the throes of of the planting and and season. And they've actually planted the seeds in the shape, in the face of Lionel Messi um, in honour of his World Cup victory. And um, and incredible technology, actually. It's obviously computer technology that they've put through. But yes, I look forward to there has been a very severe drought, though. So they are are concerned that maybe only parts of his face um, come up um, on one side, but um, but yeah, do take take a look at the images. They're quite spectacular. There was one corn farm where where you see his whole face. So, yeah. Fantastic, uh, amazing, as you might say. Lucinda Elliott in uh, Buenos Aires. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to the briefing on Monocle Twenty Four. Finally on today's show, it's time for some fashion. Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Teodosi, has just come back from Men's Fashion Weeks in both Paris and Milan. She's here with us now in the studio to share her highlights. A very glamorous life you have, jetting around to all these fashion shows. And of course, then you waft into the studio looking as cool and calm and fashionable as one would expect. So, Natalie, welcome back. Thank you, Georgina. (laughs) It's great to be back in the studio with you. Uh, Now, let's start with Milan, because, of course, this is Gucci's new chapter. No creative director. Exactly. And that was a big conversation of the fashion month in general. Uh, Alessandro Michele, the former creative director, had really shaped the brand's identity and had made it into one of Caring Group's highest earners. So uh, opening Milan Fashion Week without him and with uh, the studio team behind the scenes uh, designing the collection was a big topic of conversation. And what they presented was a clean slate for the brand. It was a return to some of their more classic routes, so tailoring, luggage with with their signature monogram logo, and just more 
quiet, classic garments, but of course they tried to blend in a little bit more rock and roll, some other references that didn't quite have that strong vision that Alessandro Michele had uh, passed on to the house. And we're all waiting to see who's going to be replacing him, something mm. that I think will be announced soon. Yeah, absolutely. I finally, I have to tell you, got my dream handbag because, of course, Gucci's is logo Gucci? is Gigi, which is my initials. And finally, I have one. Very happy with that. Let's talk about the uh, biggest trends coming out of Milan. So you, you were talking about Gucci and, and the kind of going back to clean slate strip back timeless clothes really and I think that was a a theme that was seen on many of the catwalks. Exactly I think the trend is no trend in a way uh, across men's and women's fashion but even more with the men's wear and that's who stood out not anyone who tried to do something really loud or overly trendy that you know that in six months time will be old news and people will be bored of it. It was those designers like Silvia Venturini Fendi, Giorgio Armani, um, Mucha Prada as well, uh, who really went back to classics and didn't try too hard. It, It was more about clothes that have utility. And it was really interesting, particularly particularly, sorry, at Prada, where we saw just clean tailoring, very slim silhouettes, just classic great garments. And backstage, Mrs. Prada spoke about the need to really acknowledge what's going on in the world and just really focus on offering people things that can last and that they can use in their day-to-day lives. Mm. Now, I'm sure off the catwalk, you were attending lots of glamorous parties, but there were also various uh, presentations taking place. Exactly. I think during the Men's Wear Week in Milan in particular, because Italy has such a great tradition with, with tailoring, there's all these brands and presentations to, di- to discover off the catwalk. And I really loved uh, going to the Brioni presentation in the Pinacoteca de Brera. So they all also uh, take you to interesting venues all around Milan. And uh, when you speak to designers there, there's a real obsession with craft, with really finding out the, the best materials and... Uh, presenting clothing that is always pushing the envelope with quality, with with how they're structuring everything. And I mean, I remember seeing a a jacket at Brioni that was so light. The designer told me it was like stitching air. So a lot of innovation in that that sense as well. Uh, Moving on to Paris, how would you say that Paris uh, Fashion Men's Week is different from the rest? I think in Paris, it's a lot more about the spectacle. So you go to shows that are hosted in these spectacular locations. There's crowds and crowds of screaming teenagers outside (laughs) waiting to see the celebrities that arrive. So it's as much uh, a show to present new collections for press and buyers as a huge marketing exercise for these brands that has, I mean, I think moved into pop culture and it's a lot more about also the people that are attending the show, where it's hosted, the set, and and all these extra layers that that create buzz on the streets, on the internet, and uh, get eyeballs on the brand. Mm. And the Paris standouts for you? 
I think one of the biggest ones would be the Dior Men's show. Uh, it was in uh, held in this giant tent in the Place de la Concorde, where, as I mentioned before, thousands and thousands of people gathered outside to see who's coming in. Uh, but when you walked in, it was exactly the, the feeling was exactly the opposite. It was calm. Everything was dark, very serene. And in giant screens, we saw a film of Robert Pat Pattinson and Gwendolyn Christine uh, narrating experts from uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And then the clothes really kind of melded in with, with, with that feeling. Uh, everything was really chic, really serene, beautiful materials. And it offered a moment of reflection as well as just beautiful clothes. So it was a real highlight. Natalie, thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Teodosi. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, in which I have learnt, thank you Natalie for sending me back to the wasteland, that there is a line in there that Lou Reed lifted from one of his songs, Good Night Ladies, comes straight from the wasteland. Didn't know that, so thank you for that. The show was produced by Paige Reynolds and Christy O'Grady. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan, and our studio manager was the very hardworking Callum McLean. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be with you on The Globalist first thing tomorrow. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Thank you.